netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. I'm Jeff Huser. In this episode, Mike Seymour is going to talk with Rob Magash about a set of commercials for Hyundai. Five unique commercials, over 100 shots, and an eight-week schedule. It's a discussion that goes beyond just the work on the spots, but also into the workflow that one might not instantly associate with post-production and visual effects. If you work in post, you likely have found yourself more and more getting dragged into things that were traditionally telecine or even on-set decisions, like looking at metadata to find lens data that was missed in the script notes, or going back to raw files to do detective work on aspects of how things were transferred. Rob and Mike discuss shooting these commercials on the Alexa, so a log C versus raw discussion and other workflow issues. They'll also talk about the company that did the spots, Rob's Dashing Collective. I'd like to recommend you go over to fxguide.com and check out the article that's associated with this podcast, where you'll be able to check out these spots that we're talking about. Let's join now Mike Seymour talking with Rob Magash from Dashing Collective. So Rob, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm great. Really good. So tell us about this uh, new set of spots, um, which, you know, seemingly uh, require quite a lot of CG or incredibly large studios. Yeah, I mean, we, um, it was a really tight schedule and we had to create uh, five pretty independent, uh, fully CGI environments. Um, and along with that, we were there was a live action shoot and we had to rotoscope and track all the cars and um, get it all rendered and integrated in um, just over eight weeks. So there's about a hundred shots total. It was, uh, it was a big job. So the premise of the ads is that the cars are in some super high tech, semi virtual, semi research labby kind of place, but it's obviously a vast end and uh, fairly stylized environment. But then, of course, they match to an exterior shot. They drive out of that straight out into somebody's you know, front, uh, front driveway. And I guess that makes it kind of hard. Where was the CG and the cars? Were, were obviously the end cars live action. Were any of the cars in the interior environment live action? Uh, actually, all the cars were live action. That was, oh, uh, really? Yeah, and that was um, from the beginning, we sort of knew that... Uh, as as the concept changed and as schedules changed, it was because it was such a quick turnaround. We knew that it was going to be um, easier to just have those cars and, and build environments around them and um, try to build the, the environments in as modular a way as we could, and so that we could um, just focus on making the environments integrate with the cars. I mean, we did do a lot of tracking of every car so that we could uh, integrate uh, shadows and reflections and all that kind of stuff. But uh, to go the full mile and, and get all that stuff integrated wasn't uh, realistic. Well, now we're going to talk about the post-production in a second, but if I can just talk about the production side of it. Um, yep. I've shot my fair share of cars, and you can get a really nice lighting setup on a car, assuming that the camera doesn't move and the car doesn't move. The second either of those things seem to move, you get reflections of everything you don't want and none of the reflections you do want. And I'm, I'm guessing that you basically had to do a fair amount of either reflection removal or reflection adding, because these are beautifully lit cars, even though they're traveling quite large distances. Yeah, I mean, it was... Um it was tough early on too because they uh, they couldn't find a stage that was necessarily big enough to give you the fall off where the background was completely black. So we did do a lot of cleanup and grade fixing to to, to adjust that stuff. I think um, 
to his credit, though, Claudio Miranda did an incredible job. Um, I think that the lighting rig, rig that he sort of envisioned and built for that thing with those all those kinos um, was just incredible, um, and that really um, just made the whole thing unique. So, were you on set? Yeah, absolutely. We had a we had a pretty big team on set. Um, it actually was pretty crazy right from from the award. Like we had uh, uh, designers working in London with uh, the director for the motion graphics stuff. Some guys that I've worked with in the past, um, and then uh, previous artists. Is when the director arrived in Toronto, we had uh, a team of three previous guys working with him and John Beard, the production designer, um, storyboarding. It was sort of it wasn't sort of the traditional make some boards and then do some previews from the storyboards. We were we had three storyboard artists in our boardroom um, working back and forth with the previous artists to just as quickly as possible build that. And then like five days later, director was traveling to Vancouver. I sent uh, two more previous artists, or actually one more, to uh, Vancouver to work with him while he was uh, doing his prep, and we continued to work here. Um, and during that process, um, a lot of the creative was sort of ironed out as far as design of the space, um, scale of the space. Uh, John Beard had a pretty clear vision as far as what he wanted for this. It, it needed to feel expansive, but he didn't want to have it uh, unrealistic. It was definitely a, a postmodern vibe. Uh, there was it needed to be an arch- architectural logic to everything. So um, that was uh, inspiring to sort of. I mean, I think. When we first started it, we really felt that this thing was going to be this giant CG extravaganza that was over the top, and he really brought it down to earth. And it's still big, and it still has the scale, but there's a, an element to it which um, feels a little bit more natural because of his input. So, so I mean, Claudio, you mentioned before, is, is obviously an incredibly experienced DOP, having worked on, what, Tron, and uh, before that, he was, on, he was a DP on Benjamin Buttons, right? Yeah, but, uh, he was on buttons, and I think he was uh, camera or operator on uh, Fight Club. Uh, uh, I mean, so yeah, very well versed in visual effects. And so, what format did he choose to shoot this stuff for you on? We shot on Ari Alexa. Okay. Um, and, and were you shooting to an off pack uh, in RAW, or were you shooting nineteen twenty by ten eighty to a compressed format to the SBS cards? Uh, we actually went to the SBS and uh, everything was ProRes. And the reason for that was uh, we didn't have the time to get stuff turned around because we, when we actually were on set, we had editorial there with us as well. So the editor, Chris Van Dyke, was, was cutting the spots as they came off the camera. We actually had an approval on the first spot um, two days after it was shot and we started tracking and roto um, almost immediately. So it was pretty unique in that respect. Like we were, it was, it was, it's just crazy to be working on stuff just as it was hot off the press essentially. So now we're going to get to the post in a second, as I said, but it was an open EXR pipeline for you, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, we, we, so you have an open EXR pipeline. You would think that you would want to shoot raw in camera. So this is a question I think a lot of people are really interested in is your professional opinion on what kind of difference or compromise it made not shooting raw. In other words, how valid it is to shoot that uh, ARRI Log C format, but in a, you know, SYS compressed uh, state. Because obviously you did a lot of effects work with this and, and grading and tracking, etc. Any compromises along the way? 
Um, I think you definitely compromise on, I mean, resolution is one, right? And uh, as far as the fidelity of the image, the the amount of of color information, um, we were really careful to be working in raw through the whole process, which made sure that we didn't have too much of that happening. So we basically, um, the raw images, we would convert to EXR directly in Nuke, um, when we were working... Uh, so when you say the raw images, but it was log C, right? Not raw? It was log C, sorry. So yeah, okay, yep. Sorry, interrupt. So the log, the log C we converted to EXR. We used uh, the RE Alexa LUT tools, all, all that business, and uh, directly to um, linear EXRs. Um, and then when it was uh, telecinator transferred on the base light... Um, we, I actually asked the, the colorist to uh, give us EXRs. Um, he had never done that before, but it, it actually worked out really well to um, with the uh, with the LUTs to bring those in to, to Nuke and get everything working with cube files. We actually had a really unique process too, as far as um, when we were lighting in V-Ray, uh, the some of the nightly builds, and actually I think the current build of V-Ray now um, supports uh, cube files, so you can actually be um, lighting your CG with the color of the uh, the color that's been applied in mind. So a lot of so some of the shots, like it was literally, um, we were able to not plug and play, but um, certainly as it, when, when you bring it in and, you, and you're comp- compositing it in, it feels a lot less um, tampered with. Um, because you're actually applying light that has been colored the same way as the uh, the footage. So now the open EXRs are scene referred linear. So presumably, uh, well, what color space are you in? Are you, did you have to define a color space at the at the S by S log C stage? Or uh, you... uh, well, our, yeah. Our, so our end result was all Rec seven and nine. So we were working Rec seven nine as our final result for everything. So all of our display LUTs were based on Rec. 709. Right, but you stripped out all the gamma and basically had fully linear files coming out of the base light for which the team could then obviously sensibly work with and move forward. And I presume HDRs from on set, was that? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, well, actually, no. We, well, we did have HDRs on set, but we actually made more use of uh, HDRs of the actual lights, like the kinos themselves. We... Uh, We've rebuilt the environment based on the track data, and um, it's for what for the the amount of motion that was happening with these cars and the amount of reflections that needed to happen. Um, a spherical HDR uh, wouldn't quite cut it because you need to have right. a lot of a lot of changes in the reflections and that kind of thing. Um, but and we actually, as far as um, because of course, if I was doing an HDR, I'd do a point-based HDR sample, and by definition, all these cars are driving, so that's not going to do us a lot of good. You needed that continuously changing, um, but obviously higher dynamic range lighting setup that those overhead fluoros slash bars of light were producing. Yeah, exactly. Um, we actually did use the um, the sort of raw or the the RE raw or the RE log C um, converted linear space EXRs for a lot of our plates when we were compositing and when we we're de- um, cr- defining the the color in V-Ray as well because as opposed to the base light graded um, EXRs um, we did a match grade and the reason why was because the log C data I mean we were getting 
incredible range out of those files. It was these, the keynotes were so bright, we were seeing values in 20 and 30 on, uh, on our footage. Um, when it, whereas when it came off the base light, it would be uh, clamped quite, quite a bit more. So. Oh, okay. So the base light was actually not a, a scene linear referred file. The base light was actually a grade, but in OpenEXR format. Is that what you're saying? The base light stuff that we got was in the RE Log C uh, to Rec 709 um, format. I mean, it's if you look through that, I can't remember what it is, but if you look through the uh, the RE work workflow, there's uh, a couple steps to it where you need to make sure you're you're keeping within the Rec 709 workflow. Yeah. Um, in the legal color range, I can't remember what it is exactly. Right, but by using the um, uh, the ARRI workflow with the Alexa Log C being converted through, you basically got a nice, clean, flat image upon which to work with, which, of course, gives you all the latitude that the Alexa has. Because the only compromise I would have thought, apart from the resolution, is that theoretically it's compressed. Though, if, if you're compressing to a Log C format, you're actually going to have still a heck of a lot of grading latitude and it's probably going to have to be pushed pretty hard before it breaks up. Is that your experience? Yeah, I didn't, I was really, really surprised. I mean, I didn't have a lot of problems working with it. I think, I mean, I, I have had problems in the past working with log, with the log C stuff, but I don't know if it was Claudio's experience with that camera. I mean, he's, he espouses that camera. He's, he's always praising it and it's because he knows it so well. Right. Um, it, I guess it just depends on, on on how well it's exposed and how technical um, the team is. He had uh, a lot of the, a lot of his crew and a lot of like the like the uh, the dit and everybody were from Tron as well, and we were even shooting on the stage from Tron. So right. it was kind of funny. Now you had to put some, you had to extend out these sets and and remove some stuff and and produce the sort of CG sets, which were vast in some cases. I mean. Uh, in in one of the spots, um, you're driving around this huge uh, sort of donut shaped thing, which obviously was was much bigger than than was available. But also, there are close up shots where um, you need to add CG and do stuff. Um, so, I guess from my point of view, the um, the stuff that was happening on set needed to be tracked and solved very accurately, as did the car. Did you therefore calibrate all the lenses on the Alexa? I mean, what to basically allow for barrel distortion and everything else? Yep, absolutely. We had uh, we shot lens grids for all the lenses. We uh, we did we had a total station on set to do um, tracking of the stage um, and all the all the cars as well um, because you never as close as CAD data or um, other car data is. It's never necessarily as accurate as the cars you actually shoot on the day. Um, and we were calibrating the, the total station every day just to make sure that uh, the stage, which was elevated, um, it would, uh, or the platform that the cars were driving on, we actually found it was moving um, like three, four inches a day just from the constant breaking oh, really? at the platform. Yeah. And in some of the spots, like the Velocitas spot, the car does a uh, turntable 180. It's part of the whole point of the ad that it reverses out um so that was just the car on a turntable or did you play with the camera i don't know how you would do that if you did but you said there was no cg car and i just assumed that the wide shot was a cg car um how did you manage to sort of do that was there just turntables built on set it was this was really sort of like 
the whole production from day one was roll up your sleeves and get it done. They that one they they built a turntable and they had five guys pulling it um, as hard as they could. And this is at, at like I mean, it was long shoot days. We were doing eighteen hour days for for seven days. Um, so it was everybody was just getting it done. And in one of the spots, uh, which is about the suspension on the SUV, the the camera gag, I guess, is that um, there are little sensor slash cameras that are running along beside the car. But of course, in the final spot, to sort of make life interesting, <laughs> they're running on invisible rails. Um, were they in any way practical, or was that all done in post? Uh, those were all post. Uh, a lot and a lot of that stuff. I mean, there was some roto, there was some modeling of the cameras and rebuilding them, um, but. Uh, it was it was a mix, a mishmash of different techniques, um, and even a lot of two D to get some of the, uh, the the sheen and the reflections on the metal, and um, taking advantage of a lot of like uh, just relighting techniques and you know, using uh, normal maps, and it was it was interesting. So let's discuss the post team because this is kind of a real validation of your philosophy because you put together a team. Um, but you employed a bunch of what I'm going to call really cutting-edge kind of approaches in almost every corner of this job, which is kind of brave of you given the tight schedule. I mean, for a start, um, these were, uh, for example, not even rendered at your place, right? You had a render farm, like a cloud-based farm? We had a, we had a small local farm for compositing and render testing, and then we, had, uh, we used some render services online um, for the bulk of it. Um, which uh, had its pros and cons, but uh, it, it did work in the end, which was great. And um, you had artists from all over the world? We, yeah, we had a, I mean, it was really my dream team, I think, just from having worked in London and Los Angeles and New York and um, just having the privilege of working all these great places. I've met so many good people on the way. And I um, was fortunate enough to get sort of the guys that I would want to put in one room. I had them all in, in the same place or even whether it's virtually or, or for real. I mean, we were all working together. It was a really great collaboration. And, uh, and who, was, uh, you know, who was on the team and where were they from? Um, so my, my main designer is uh, someone I worked for years with at Asylum, uh, Justin uh, Blampier, who uh, was responsible for, for many of the really amazing film titles at, at Asylum. And uh, my, my sort of... CG supervisor was a, a guy by the name of Sebastian Bilbao who uh, spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. He's originally from Spain and Argentina, and he's do, he's done his his rounds at the Sony's and digital domains and bigger studios. Um, the uh, sort of visionary uh, mad scientist behind the CG lighting of this thing and, and texturing surfacing of uh, the environment was. Uh, Scott Metzger, who uh, is sort of well known for um, his uh, accomplishments with V-Ray, um, and it just he's all over the the Chaos site, um, and then also uh, he he just has some incredibly progressive techniques uh, with Mari. Um, we actually, because of this project, uh, there were five or six new features introduced into Mari. Some of the uh, projection tools for textures. Uh, the ability to paint with uh, 
with HDR, uh, with 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 the ability to change the exposure as you're painting, um, a lot of those things came came about as as he was working with the software and working back and forth with the development team, which was cool. Um, animation was uh, animation director I worked with for many years, Stu Burris. Um, I'm trying to think, I don't want to miss anybody. Uh, a local CG stoop, Alvin Fernando, myself. Uh, a couple great new artists, and uh, I think that's it. If I can just loop back around on the the Mari stuff for a second, um, do you want to describe what models or what uh, you're working that on? I mean, what was it? What was the what part of the spots were being uh, done through Mari? Um, yeah, so I mean, we have because of the scale of these things, and because we were creating modular. Uh, uh, sort of modular environments that could be tailored to each spot or scaled width-wise or height-wise to, to fit the individual environments. Um, we quickly, I mean, we found one of the limitations with the build we were using was that uh, V-Ray would pre-tessellate all, its, all the geometry at render time. Um, so we were dealing with um, giant, giant uh, render times. So Mari combined with Mudbox... Um, we were able to create these massive textures that uh, were then, um, sorry, V-Ray doesn't pre-tessellate, it uh, tessellates at render time. We were able to pre-tessellate the geometry of our environments to um, get around the fact that uh, instances in Maya through V-Ray um, are not instanced properly. They, they're all used as uh, distinct geometry. Um, okay. So this just kept our render times down. And we still ended up with uh, Geo for the whole environment that was about uh, 15 or 20 gigabytes and uh, textures that were, yeah, 7 or 8 gigabytes, 15K, 20K textures. And on to some of the other uh, 3D, there's um, in a couple of the spots the need for the environment to sort of throw up what I'm going to call almost X-ray schematics of parts of the cars like the suspension system and also the um i believe the clutch system yep. um and i'm wondering uh how basically they look cool how kind of accurate are they and if they had to be really accurate how the heck did you get them done that accurately did you get models from my hyundai or well i mean whether or not you want to put it on the record or not <laughs> they um uh they were somewhat accurate. We, we, we were working under a very tight timeline, so we and, and we didn't have any CAD data. That was right. one of the one of the things about uh, because it's a Canadian spot. Um, it's a, it's Hyundai Canada is actually a, a distribution arm uh, or distribution company. It's not actually part yeah. of Hyundai proper. So they uh, we didn't have access to any of those models. So we were we were modeling all that stuff from. Uh, video reference and images and like uh product photos because uh, quite frankly if someone told me to design a clutch system i'd have almost no idea how to to even draw it to get alone sort of start modeling it i mean a, a suspension system you got an idea that there's a spring but you know unless you're like heavily into cars and yet uh i imagine that and they don't need to be you know completely accurate obviously because they're as i say they're just kind of like more um you know indicative of the sort of intelligence of what's going on they're illustrative to the to the story not you know trying to demonstrate a product uh, per se but nevertheless they look kind of cool and that must have taken a bit of work to get that to happen 
Absolutely. I mean, we were modeling from the award. Like we just started, we had three or four people modeling remotely and just getting it going. We, like, it was a ton of, ton of stuff to model. Um, and but, I mean, we did, we, you do get away with a lot because of the, the translucent uh, blue tinted stuff that we were doing. I mean, that, uh, it does help you quite a bit. And, um, yeah, I guess it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, where were you in terms of uh, approval? Did this? Um, did you have to remain flexible to the end, or was this pretty tight because of the schedule and everything else? That because all of, a lot of these things, you know, when you're trying to diagrammatically show a suspension system, um, you know, you can't really say what that's going to look like 100 percent until you start getting into it. I guess. Was yeah, the I mean, approval process easy. It was actually they were really good. I mean, we we were very quick to from the very beginning. I mean, I had that's why I was bringing guys in from from abroad that I knew were the experts that could get this stuff done quickly. Um, when we were building our concepts, it was all with the idea that this is what's actually going to be on screen. This is actually what we're going to deliver, not not just an idea of something that uh, we're going to rebuild entirely. So, um, because we were doing the concept work. Um, to such a high level and trying to keep in mind that we needed to be very, very accurate in terms of what assets we were showing, um, it made the, the process much easier. Um, and then through through the production, a lot of that stuff was stuff that we ended up ultimately using as far as the graphics were concerned and, and, and the treatment of how we were putting that stuff together. Um, I think the concepts were quite similar to what, uh, or sorry, the final result was quite similar to what the concepts were. So there were five spots in all. Um, were any of them like more difficult than any of the others or was it pretty much just a matter of sort of coming out with... Because, I mean, each of them had their own... In some cases, it was a view of the, uh, the hybrid system. In some cases, it was suspension, whatever. But did they all sort of come through equally or were you uh, wrestling with one until the finish line? Uh, no, there was definitely... I mean, there was definitely different scales as, 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 they, as we went through the production. And we sort of planned it in that way so that like, uh, there was a staggered delivery where, where Veloster was the first one to come out, right. um, along with Tucson and uh, Sonata. And then the, the more effects-heavy and sort of larger-scale environments of Genesis and uh, Elantra were the ones that we uh, delivered last. I must admit, I liked the Elantra um, jet engine, uh, whatever it was, thing that you were you guys came up with it uh if you had to come up with a large uh, air turbine kind of thing that was a pretty cool looking one to be flying along a, a virtual track yeah it was a lot of fun so i, I actually and that that actually was a little bit of uh i mean it was something we had to build from scratch without having to, without having known in the beginning that we were going to be building that um i mean we'd always known that we were going to be responsible for either adding in turbine um, details or maybe the, the the upper half of it or the bottom half of it, but uh, we ended up in the end building the whole thing from scratch, um, and that just became came. It was just one of those things that happens in production. You've you've got a very limited period of time to do a lot, build a lot of things, and um, we were happy to have the opportunity. So I must admit, it's one of my favorite shots. There's a low side shot looking way up along long what looks like a tunnel, 
uh, in that spot with the uh, sort of jet turbine in front of the car. And, and I noticed that you've got it moving at a slightly different pace to the car. And it's just all finished really well. And it's just, uh, it's a heck of a graphic looking shot. But it, uh, it certainly adds a heck of a lot of production value, those big wider shots. Yeah, and that was something that we, um, as we were going through it, we, we did play a little bit with um, the scale of the shots, and, and some of it happened as, as sort of happy accidents, even on the post-production side, where um, we, we, the track would come in, and for whatever reason, the camera would be offset by a couple meters, and all of a sudden, you see more of the wall, or the lens was slightly wider than it was in actuality, so we, we, we took advantage of that. We, we, when we saw those opportunities, we took them. Well, they're great spots, and uh, and it's obviously a good uh, working setup that you've got there in terms of uh, this sort of new model uh, with dashing. So congratulations, and I hope we'll see more of this stuff. Thanks for talking to us, man. Thanks a lot, Mike. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks, Mike, and thanks to Rob. If you haven't been to FX Guide or FX PhD lately, I'd really recommend you stop by. We got a lot of great interviews at the VES Awards and at the SciTech Oscars, and events and interviews around that whole weekend. To highlight a couple of things, Mike's FX Guide TV with Kim Masters, who hosts KCRW's The Business Show and also the podcast, and is also the editor at The Hollywood Reporter, was what I would call a must-watch if you're in the business. We tend to hear about and focus a lot on business issues related to visual effects, but hearing some of her thoughts on the bigger picture of the film business in general was great. There's a bit about laser projectors over on the production blog at FXPHD, and the RC podcast covering digital cinematography has a great episode on the state of the nation in camera tech, and surely the next episode will talk about the newly released Canon 5D Mark III. And then, of course, NAB is right around the corner, and we'll be covering that in full force. So head over to fxguide.com and fxphd.com and check out all that's new. I've barely scratched the surface. Well, that'll do it for this FX podcast. My partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery. This is Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.